The Guardian. Hello, I'm John Dennis. Today in Afghanistan, three British soldiers have been killed by a rogue Afghan soldier. He used a gun to kill one soldier and then used a rocket-propelled grenade to kill um, a couple of others. The salary of a primary headteacher who transformed the fortunes of an inner-city school has come under fire. There are some staff in this headteacher school who may be paid very little. There may be classroom assistants who might be paid as little as £14,000. The mysterious appearance at the Pakistani embassy in Washington of an Iranian nuclear scientist who Tehran says was abducted by the CIA. It appears on the face of it to vindicate their claim, their long-standing claim, that this scientist was the victim of kidnapping by American intelligence. Hopes are rising that the latest effort to contain BP's oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico may be working. We don't know if it's flowing through the well pipe, we don't know if it's leaking through the pipe, we don't know if it's flowing outside the pipe. And the seaside prom, a way of bringing tourists back to Britain's run-down coastal resorts. First, our top story. Three British troops have been killed by a renegade Afghan soldier during a joint patrol with local forces in southern Helmand. Four more were injured. The Defence Secretary, Liam Fox, says an investigation is being carried out into the attacks. The soldiers were killed in a suspected premeditated attack by a member of the Afghan National Army using a combination of weapons. This is a despicable and cowardly act, and my thoughts and prayers go out to the family and friends of those who have lost their lives. This incident will be thoroughly investigated by ASAF and by the Afghan security forces, and we will do everything we can to bring the individual responsible to justice. Training and development of the Afghan national security forces is vital to the international security mission in Afghanistan. And today's events will not undermine the real progress we continue to make. British and ISAF forces are working shoulder to shoulder with the Afghans and will continue to do so undeterred. But The Guardian's Joe Adetunji says that at the time of recording, the killer's still on the run. The sort of first reports were that the renegade um, Afghan soldier had, had killed some of his British colleagues. Um, and it turns out they're in the 1st Battalion Royal Gurkhas. And reports are that, you know, he used a gun um, to kill one soldier and then used a rocket-propelled grenade to kill um, a couple of others. Up to four others were also injured and he's on the run. So um, they, he's currently being looked for. What have the Afghan government said about it? Well, Hamid Karzai um, sort of issued an apology uh, to NATO and the British government um, in a letter. Uh, and the sort of defence um, ministry has also said that, you know, they're, they're sort of looking for this traitor, as they're calling him. How unusual is something like this? 
Um, well, it has happened before. In November, uh, a police recruit killed five um, and injured six um, in an attack. And there was another one in December. Although sort of police have a reputation for being more corrupt and uh, you know, having an ill discipline. This is very kind of shocking for the uh, National Army, um, who aren't kind of seen in those terms and, you know, has kind of rattled uh, sort of military and political personnel. And it, it does highlight some of the problems that NATO has faced in training Afghan security forces. Yeah, I mean, they, they basically work very closely to train um, Afghan troops and then obviously have to have the trust to work side by side. General Petraeus, who heads up NATO, uh, and James Carr Smith from Task Force Helmand and Liam Fox, the Defence Secretary, have all come to say that, you know, it's imperative that they keep on working together um, and that one sort of rogue soldier um, won't stop, you know, the, the advances being made. Joe Alatunji, and there's full coverage at guardian.co.uk slash Afghanistan. Mark Elms runs Tidemill Primary School in Deptford in south-east London. It's got 336 pupils, and when he took over the school in 2001, it was earmarked for closure. But he's turned it around. It's currently rated outstanding by Ofsted. But the GMB union, which campaigns against low pay, has expressed outrage at his take-home pay for the last financial year, £231,400. Although parents at the school say he deserves every penny, I put it to The Guardian's education editor, Jeevan Vasigar, that it does sound like a lot. I guess what you have to do is break it down a little and look at what he actually earned. His pay for the last financial year for his job as a primary school te- head teacher was 82,000. How this figure of over 200 has been um, derived is by looking at some consultancy work he also did. Now, the reason he was doing this was because he was such a good head teacher. He was working on a scheme called City Challenge, which involves head teachers from very good schools spreading their knowledge and spreading their kind of wisdom about how to turn a school around. And for that, he was paid £100,000 extra. And that breaks down into £50,000 for each of the last two years. And then if you add in some sort of back pay and arrears, that sort of takes it over that sort of magical £200,000 mark. But in itself, you know, arguably £80,000 for the head of a primary school is not necessarily an exorbitant sum. The GMB union says it's outraged at this. Um, the GMB represents thousands of public sector workers. What's it playing at calling for a cap on teachers' pay? I suppose the union's concern, and it's not just the GMB, uh, the teaching unions have also um, added to that, although you're right, it was the GMB who identified this in the first place. I think their concerns are twofold. Um, one is they're concerned about pay disparity. So they would argue there are some staff um, in this head teacher school who maybe pay very little. There may be classroom assistants who might be paid as little as £14,000. Um, and there is also some concern that this um, can be a bit opaque. We don't necessarily know the exact details of what head teachers are paid. The unions are saying there are a lot more head teachers earning very, very high salaries. Um, and that needs to sort of come out in the open to be debated. Having said that, um, there obviously is a question mark about whether someone who is doing a less demanding job should be paid you know, anything like the amount that uh, Mr Elms has been paid. Will the government cap headteachers' salaries? Well, Gove has already said he's keen to cap headteachers' salaries. Um, it's been talked of that no headteacher should earn more than the Prime Minister. It's clearly a very sensitive area and there isn't much money to pay people, so that, that's, the sort of, that's obviously the sort of political mood. And what about head teachers of academy schools? Because they have a greater degree of independence than non-academy state schools. Will their pay be capped? Well, I think this sort of this sort of fuels uh, the union's concern, and it will be a very interesting point to see whether Gove will take this on because uh, academies 
and free schools, which are again kind of free of local authority control and some say free of scrutiny, uh, are among his pet projects. So it is interesting to see whether there'll be a collision between his desire to kind of curb pay and to give freedom to these, these new schools. Jeevan Vasigar, an Iranian nuclear scientist who went missing during a pilgrimage to Mecca a year ago, has turned up at Pakistan's embassy in Washington. Iran claims Shahram Amiri was kidnapped by the CIA. The Guardian's Middle East editor is Ian Black. Well, he'd been in Saudi Arabia on the Hajj pilgrimage, and it is said, uh, the Iranians have said, and he has said, that he was uh, abducted, taken to the United States, in his version with the collaboration of the Saudi Arabian uh, intelligence services. The Americans and the Saudis have both denied this, but there have been reports, apparently uh, well-founded reports in, in the American media that it was indeed the case that he was this was a, a CIA operation to use somebody who was in some way connected to the Iranian nuclear program, which is, of course, of enormous interest to the, the Americans and to indeed to other, other Western governments. So it has, in the big sense, the ring of truth to it, but the details remain very, very hazy. What's happened now uh, means that we may know more about what really did happen. Do we know how he ended up in the Pakistani embassy in Washington? We don't. I mean, that's you know, one very significant detail that is uh, shrouded in mystery, as is so much else in this story. Uh, if he was in somehow in the custody of American officials, then one can speculate that somehow he got away. He claimed in a previous video that was shown in Iran that he had indeed escaped from his captors, as he described them. Uh, that was some weeks ago now. Uh, what we have now is something quite different, where he's actually uh, in Washington in a, a sort of diplomatic uh, territory that is under Iranian jurisdiction, but within a curious and very, very adversarial relationship. The United States and Iran have had no diplomatic relations since the uh, Iranian Revolution in 1979. And what there is is a, what's called an interest section overseen by the Pakistani government, where the Iranian government does whatever limited business it can do, is permitted to do in the United States. The Swiss play a parallel role for the Americans in Iran. So this uh, Amiri has taken refuge in the Iranian interest section of the Pakistani embassy in Washington. Will he be able to leave there is another question that we, don't, we can't answer at this stage. And Pakistan, uh, an ally of the United States, it's clearly a complicated situation whose outcome is unclear. I think what is certain is that we've already seen from the Iranian government trumpeting this news because it appears on the face of it to vindicate their claim, their long-standing claim that this scientist was the victim of kidnapping by American intelligence. Now, you know, to be able to present that for a government which you know, likes to get its messages across uh, I think we'll see the Iranians certainly trumpeting that today. Whether we'll know anything more substantial about what actually happened, of course, is a different matter. Ian Black. My name's John Dennis. You're listening to Guardian Daily. In the Gulf of Mexico, tests are underway to see if a new cap can stem the flow of oil from BP's gushing wellhead. In Washington, the Guardian's environment correspondent is Suzanne Goldenberg, and she says there's some optimism that this could be a turning point in efforts to contain America's worst environmental disaster. Basically, BP is going to spend about six to eight hours slowly shutting down the valves on this cap and just to see what happens with the pressure in the well. 
if everything goes well, then yes, this should be, you know, sort of closing off the flow of wealth for the very first time um, in nearly three months, you know, since, since the explosion on the deep water horizon. But there's a lot of uncertainties. And the main one really is that no one knows for sure how the oil is exiting the reservoir and coming up to the surface. We don't know if it's flowing through the well pipe. We don't know if it's leaking through the pipe. We don't know if it's flowing outside the pipe and in between the cement lining. So all of these variables are, are going to tell on whether they can indeed you know, shut off the oil today as, a, as they help. And this would only be a temporary measure anyway, wouldn't it? It's not an entirely reliable measure. It's only temporary. The only way to shut this well down for good is basically to bury it in mud. And that process is going on. They're digging a relief well. They're going to eventually intercept this runaway Maconda well and pump a lot of heavy drilling mud into it and, and basically stifle the well. That's the only permanent solution. But this is seen as a pretty good fix in the interim. And meanwhile, Suzanne, there's been growing opposition in the States to Barack Obama's efforts to stop new drilling projects in the Gulf. That's right. He's having a really bad time of it in the courts. He's gone to the courts repeatedly now to try and put some restrictions on offshore drilling of new wells in the Gulf. And that keeps getting knocked back by the courts. And there's rising uh, political opposition to that from Republicans in Congress, from the oil industry, and from local people in Louisiana, because the oil industry is so important uh, to the state. So he's really um, taken on a very big battle that year, even though the restrictions uh, will only affect a very few wells of the thousands of uh, wells currently in production in the Gulf of Mexico. It's only the brand new deep water wells that are, are going to be face restrictions. And the public hearings of, of a commission appointed by President Obama to uncover the cause of this environmental disaster, has that revealed anything so far? Well, this commission, you know, by its own admission, is getting off to um, a slow and sort of steady start. They wanted a soft launch, so they spent the first day on Monday really hearing from the community, um, trying to gauge the economic and environmental impacts. They spent last weekend actually touring uh, different local communities on the grounds, on the shores, talking to fishermen and oystermen and hotel owners and scientists about the impact of the spill. And their argument is, look, we're not just looking at the mechanics of what actually happened at the well. We want to look at the whole culture of industry here, the whole culture of government regulation to determine what cause a situation in which all these safety checks could, you know, uh, be missed. And also they, they say it's important to understand the full extent of the consequences. So they're sort of taking a slow and deliberate uh, pace to this. Guardian Daily. News and reports from around the world. By the sea! Two, three! By the sea, by the sea, by the beautiful sea. You and me, you and me, oh how happy we'll be. Piero shows were a popular form of entertainment at coastal resorts in the first half of the 20th century. Well, now some academics are reviving Pieros in the hope that their performances might help regenerate coastal towns in the southwest. The Guardian's Stephen Morris went to Tor Bay in Devon to see one such troupe, the Pier Echoes. I say, I say, I say. Oh, do you believe? What do you say? What do you get if you cross a fish? Oh, 
I'm Dr Jane Milling, uh, Senior Lecturer in Drama at the University of Exeter. It's been very interesting, the reaction we've got. I wasn't expecting people to be so wildly enthusiastic about it. Um, one of the things that we've discovered about the form is that it's highly interactive. It's not just standing on a stage and doing a show. The performers and the troops, uh, just as the troops used to do in the old days, go out and interact with audience members. So they're meeting and greeting in their character. It's very family-friendly, very accessible in that regard. And then they perform a little song, do a skit and so forth. So it's very interactive and everybody has been responding. Firstly, I should say that the story that we're trying to tell here and the, the issues that we're addressing aren't just our issues. They're, they're issues that, that are common amongst seaside towns around the country. The sharp decline as, as, as visitors left, left our shores and flew away. And from our point of view down here in the University of Vera, we're really pleased to be working with the University of Exeter and the troop to... to to bring the PROs here and to maybe hold a mirror up to our residents and our visitors and not just reflect the heritage and the past but also maybe to, to get the visitors to look at the future and because the content is so different from, from the old PRO style. It started in 1890 with Clifford Essex on the Isle of Wight and uh, within... 15 years there were hundreds of troops and thousands of members so between the two world wars it would have been the main training ground for young performers and old stages so it's the equivalent of uh, an indie pop chart or uh, the, the comedy circuit today and so English comedy and English music is created out of what were the concert parties and Piero troops. So you couldn't have the Kinks, the Beatles, the Coral. You couldn't have contemporary music and you couldn't have the League of Gentlemen or Forty Towers or Benny Hill. That comedy and that music comes out of a tradition which is forged partly by the Piero troops. Yet nowadays, nobody knows much about the history of the Piero troops, what they did, how they did it, why they did it. And there's very little live acoustic performance that is freely available and accessible at the seaside. Most of it's mediated, amplified. Um, you, there are a few Punch and Judy professors around, and that's regarded as a very kind of um, uh, heritage-based uh, uh, project, although families do watch it and enjoy it and love it. But the spirit of that, the spirit of the seaside, and how to apply that into a contemporary context, that's what... I tried to do with the Pier Rotters, which was my troupe, which I formed in 1983 in Brighton, came out of punk um, and reclaiming the streets and wanting to uh, do a different sort of work. And at that time we used to get arrested for vagrancy and the only way we could make money was by busking. But nowadays we could be part of regeneration projects in a whole cafe society. <laughs> so you can go to Covent Garden and see people performing and there are very highly paid street entertainers. So it's not trying to do a, a heritage project. It's not trying to do what was done in the past in a little thing of aspic and saying to people, what do you think of the good old days? It's actually saying, here is a form. Why did it work? How did it work? And how can we make it work now for a contemporary seaside in Torbay? Stephen Morris reporting. Guardian Daily was produced today by Andy Duckworth. My name's John Dennis. Thanks for listening. For 
more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.